0: You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey friends, it's Leslie Ann. Hope you're doing well. This week, we wrapped up our study of 1 Samuel with a discussion of chapters 29 through 31, when David leaves the Philistine army and rescues his people, and it also covers the tragic ending of Saul's life. Though the picture painted at the end of 1 Samuel is grim, we have hope, not because David is on the scene, but because God is on the move. He steps into the middle of the mess to clear the path for Israel's true king to take the throne and reign forever. The teaching corresponds with the material covered on pages 142-159 to of the Learner Workbook, available for download from thevillagechurch.net. To find out more about our local Bible study in Brandon, Mississippi, visit leslieannjones.com king. Well, we're here at the end, and just like we were talking about a minute ago, unlike with Hollywood, where all stories have happy endings except for Gone with the Wind... This one is anything but a happy ending, right? If there ever was a cliffhanger, this is it. Because when First Samuel closes, things are looking still really bad in Israel. But if you remember what we said at the beginning, that First Samuel is only half the story. All, both books, First and Second Samuel, are technically one big book, and so we really are right in the middle. So we're just going to stop right here without any resolution. We're going to leave all our loose ends hanging. Things look bad, but if we've learned anything from this book, it's that things are not always as they seem. Although things are about as bad as they can get, it's clear from these three chapters that God is still at work in Israel. So when we finished up last week, Saul was desperate and afraid in the dead of night in the house of a medium, and David was stuck between a rock and a hard place with the Philistines. And we left David there, not knowing how he was going to get out of the mess that he was in. But this week, we at least get the resolution to that story. We know what happens there. And what we see shining through all of this mess is God's grace and mercy on spectacular display toward David and toward the people who are with him. So the Lord steps in and clears a path in these chapters, not just for David to get out of the territory of his enemies, but also for him to finally take the throne. And it takes a lot of hardship to get there. There is a lot of hard truth in this chapter, just like there has been in the rest of 1 Samuel. And when the closing credits roll, though, we have hope. Not because David is on the scene, but because God is on the move. And here is the thing that is always true when it comes to the Bible. When things look really, really bad, it's never the end. That is not the way that God's story ends. If it's bad, it's not the end. That was true for them then, and that is true for us now. Things look bad in our world from time to time. The times are awfully dark. Politics are a mess. Crazy things happen. Gunmen shoot up factories. There's school shootings, natural disasters. But in all of that, God is still kink, but we need to look to Him and trust Him to see us through to the happy ending, because right now we're in the messy middle, just like they were. Okay, so let's start in chapter 29, verses 1 through 2, and dive right in. It says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. We're going to stop there right in the middle of the sentence. Fun times. Okay, let's talk about the things that we know. So in chapter 28, the Philistines were preparing to invade Israel. That is what had Saul quaking in his boots and running to the medium at Endor for help. God had stopped communicating with Saul. Why? Because Saul, in his rebellion, had stopped obeying the Lord. He was not doing the Lord's will. He was, in fact, refusing to do the Lord's will. And so the Lord removed his empowering presence from him and stopped communicating with him. But Saul is desperate, so he goes to the medium and he asks for help. He asks her to bring back Samuel, who actually shows up. But what kind of word does Samuel have for him? Is it any different than the word he's already gotten? No. Samuel gives him the same word that he had before with a few added details. One is that he names who Saul's successor is going to be, which everybody knows by this point in the story that David is the one who God has given the kingdom to. But the other thing that he he does is that he gives it a definite time frame. So before in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Samuel first issued this prophecy against Saul for his initial rebellion. It was, God has torn the kingdom from you and will give it to a neighbor of yours. Okay, well, that's vague. That'll happen someday out there. But now the time has come. Saul is losing the kingdom to David and it's going to go down tomorrow. That's what Samuel told him. That tomorrow, with this battle with the Philistines, Saul's going to lose the kingdom, he's going to die, his sons are going to die, and nothing good is going to happen at the battle. Israel is going to lose. So you don't really want to be an Israelite and be at the battle, because that's not good for you. But where is David going to be at the battle? Because before the scene with the medium, Achish had made it clear that he expected David to fight with him. And he even appointed David as his personal bodyguard. So here's David headed into battle with his 600 men. And it's a battle against his own people, which is not exactly a good place for the future king to be. Going to war against your own people. And the Philistines are gathering by the hundreds and the thousands So David and his 600 men are grossly outnumbered, and they're on the wrong side. So when you read these verses leading up to the battle, you're supposed to feel the inevitable doom that's coming. Like, uh uh-oh, this is not good. This is not a good position for David to be in. There was no way out, and he knew it. So verse 3, The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Bless Achish and his naive little heart. The Philistines are gathering. And so for once the other commanders are there, and they see David and his men. And you can hear the scorn in their question. What are these Hebrews doing here? And that term was not a politically correct term to use. It was a racial slur almost to throw at them. Because the people of Israel preferred to be called Israelites, not Hebrews. So they knew, the commanders knew, that David shouldn't be there. And it's their insistence over Achish's blind trust that turns out to be David's way out. Verse 4. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with Achish. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So they're right about one thing, and that's that if David does this, if he goes into battle with the Philistines and actually fights on their side, there will be no turning back for David. He cannot be the king of Israel if he kills Israelites in battle. He will no longer be the king after God's own heart if he does that sort of thing. So they know that he can't do that because they know who he is. They're sitting here quoting the songs that people sing about David. They know exactly who he is. So if you're David and you're in this situation, there's probably a lot of internal freaking out happening because there's no easy way to back out. You can't go into battle with the Philistines and turn on them like the lords are afraid they're going to do because they are so outnumbered. There's 600 of David's men and thousands upon thousands of the Philistines, and they are stuck right there in the middle of them. But this is where we see God's grace and mercy coming through because he intervenes for David through the discernment of these Philistine leaders, and he protects David from the consequences of his own bad choices. So verse 6 then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. Y'all, he's completely clueless. Like, I don't, I don't know how, he, if you could find somebody as clueless as Akish if you tried. But he is without a, a clue that David has been kind of playing him this whole time. He is ignorant. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. I want you to stay, but they don't think you should, so you have to leave. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? So what's this about? Why does, why does David argue with him? Yeah to keep up appearances. How will it look if David's like, oh, you don't want me to go? Cool. Peace out. Then it's apparent that he has never been on their side. So he's got to keep it up just a little bit longer to make it out alive. So how do you think he feels though when Akish says, oh, by the way, you can't go with me? Relief. Like he can finally breathe again. I mean, he may have had a plan, perhaps, that he just hadn't had a chance to put into action yet, but all of a sudden, the answer to his problems lands in his lap, but he can't seem like he's too eager to leave, because that won't look good. He has to act like he's upset, and he's in the middle of this enemy army, so he has to tread carefully. But I think one thing that's clear from this whole story is that apart from God's intervention, there was no way out for David and his men. No good way out. I mean, even if they, you know, chose to rebel against them, there, there's no way they were all going to make it out alive. So, here's the question. How did God's chosen anointed king end up on the wrong side of this battle? What happened last week? Where where did David falter? In chapter 27 verse 1. David went wrong. When he started listening to his heart, following his own reasoning, instead of following the Lord's direction. The mess that he's in is one of his own making. But y'all, there is so much grace here. Beautiful, glorious grace. Because God doesn't leave David or us in the messes of our own making. Because I have gotten myself into some. Maybe not like this quite this but God steps in and he clears the pathway out not because we deserve it not because David deserved it and not because we're worthy but it's because of who he is he is faithful even when we're not and he always protects that which he has ordained in this case he has made it clear he has spoken this word That he has chosen David to be king and he has sent his presence to be with David, to empower him, to deliver the people of Israel. And it's God's intention to put David on the throne no matter what. So he intervenes and he gets David out because God protects his glory and he protects his reputation and he protects his name. And his presence. This is not about David, but it's about the Lord protecting himself, upholding his reputation in front of the nations. From verses 10 through 11. Now then, rise early in the morning, this is Achish still talking, with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have liked. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So in these two verses, did you notice how many times that morning and light are mentioned? He tells them to go in the morning, start in the morning, depart at first light. So David gets up in the morning and he goes, but when we last left Saul, where was he? He was in the dead of night, in the darkness, with the witch of Endor. He was desperate, afraid, and alone. But the text, I think, Is setting up this contrast between them where Saul is in the dark and he's alone, but David is in the light and God is protecting him and he's moving finally in a different direction. So, chapter 30. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, that means that they were making about, you know, travel time of 25 miles a day. They were moving. I mean, for their mode of travel. (laughs) So how would you feel if you, which I'm assuming they had also been three days travel to get to wherever the Philistines were like, nope, sorry, can't come with us. And so now they're going back three days. So I'm assuming that there's something like six days of travel total here. Now, I wouldn't be feeling too spry by the time I got to the end of that sixth day. I'd be pretty tired and exhausted. So they get there. They're moving. They're hurrying home. They get there on the third day, only to find that the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. So who are the Amalekites? Who are they? They've popped up in the story a couple of times in 1 Samuel. Do you remember? They are the ones in chapter 15 that Saul was supposed to destroy. They are the ones that Saul let live. So if Saul had done what the Lord had required of him, it would have changed everything. He would have kept the kingdom. And David and his people would never have been in this situation to begin with. But Saul did not. He left them alive. And here the Amalekites are leading a raid against David and his people. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. Now, in your homework, it pointed this out. It continues on. It says they killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. How did David treat the people in the towns that he raided? He killed them all. He showed no mercy, no survivors. And here, you, here we are with the enemies of the Lord showing more mercy than David was on his raids that were probably not authorized by the Lord. Okay. So I feel like this is the low part of David's humbling because he went off into the land of the Philistines on his own. He reasoned with himself that this was the best thing to do. And so he made this plan to keep him and his men safe while he was there. So he decided to, full Achish, and lead these raids against the enemies of the Lord. But like we said last week, there was no mention of God at all in any of those verses. And it's a stark contrast to the David that we saw earlier, who was praying to the Lord and seeking the Lord and asking the Lord to direct him. And so we see that David is brought low at this point. You tried to do it on your own, and this is what happened. It's not good. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So they've been traveling hard, looking forward to nice warm supper, sleeping in your own bed. But when they get there, they find nothing but destruction. There's no happy voices. No kids are crying, Daddy, Daddy, glad you're home. There's none of these happy reunions that we see on Facebook videos of the soldiers coming home. None of that. They're just met with silence and smoke and ashes. And in their sorrow and despair, they blame David and hold him responsible for what has happened. And you can tell a lot about a person by how they act when they're desperate, afraid, and alone. The truth about who we are deep down inside has its way of wiggling its way to the surface in those moments. Because when you're desperate and afraid and alone, all pretenses fall. You can't keep up the act anymore. So this story, right on the heels of Saul's lowering, Saul has been, he has just reached the bottom. You can't go much lower than Saul has fallen when he is at the medium of indoors home. We're supposed to see the contrast between them. It's showing us the difference between the two kings because Saul never could humble himself before the Lord and admit when he had done wrong. He never could repent. He never could show remorse or admit that he had made a mistake. But David, when he relied on his own feelings and understanding, it landed him in a sticky situation and the people that he loves have been taken and captured. And he's in this terrible situation. He has reached the end of his abilities, though. He doesn't have any more strength to lean on. But unlike Saul, he admits it, stops trying to do things in his own strength. And what does he do? It says at the end of verse 6 but David strengthened himself and the Lord his God. And this is the return where David becomes the king that he is meant to be. This is the kind of king that Israel needs. They need one who is reliant upon the Lord. It says verse 7, And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David shows here that he is a king who is going to rely on the Lord and his word for strength. direction. And there's a lesson here for us too, because it's not just our leaders who need to rely on the Lord in desperate times, but it's us. Where do you turn when you're desperate? When the world falls apart around you, whose strength are you relying on? Do you try to suck it up and make it? In your own strength to soldier through? Or do you seek the Lord? Do you cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you? Are you trusting him to give you the strength, the comfort and direction that you need? And when he provides that direction, are you willing to follow it? Or do you need every single direction laid out before you? God, I'll follow you. This is hard. I will trust you. But if you will just show me the way, I'll go. Okay, God, I need a step-by-step plan. (laughs) I need more than trust me. Or are you willing to just do the next right thing? Because what we see here in David's story and what is so often true in life is that God does not give us a step-by-step master plan for life, for navigating difficult seasons. He doesn't tell you everything that's going to happen and what you should do every step along the way. No. So often it's a matter of just taking the next right step that's in front of you. And that's where David and his men are verse nine. So David set out all they know is that God has promised that they will have success. He will find them and that he will rescue them. That is what God has said. And so they leave based on this promise that he'll succeed, but without knowing where to go. It's not like there are clearly marked roads. <laughs> they're in the desert. And so they just set off, David and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the Brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed because they're exhausted. It's been days and days, they're tired. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the Brook Besor. So God doesn't give them full disclosure, but they go anyway. David sets out not knowing exactly where he's going, but trust the Lord to show him the way. And we see God delivering. Verse 11, They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten or drunk water for three days and three nights." And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We have made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I'll take you down to this band. So, in these verses, there's a sense of the story slowing down a little bit because they're hurrying, they're leaving, they're going on, they're on this hunt, they're, they're going after their people, and then they found this Egyptian, and everything stops. And it's very detailed. It says they found him, they gave him bread, and he ate. Then they gave him water, and he drank. Then they gave him more food, and he ate. So they waited, and it takes a while because if you've been sick Laying out in the middle of the desert, starving to death, dying of thirst, literally. It takes you a little while to recover from that. I don't think you just bounce back immediately. So they had to wait for this guy to recover before they received clear direction. And isn't that just how it goes in life? Sometimes you do set out in faith. But you have to wait before God shows you that next right step to take. They could have just blown on by the Egyptian and left him there. Pfft, no hope for him. But they stopped and waited and were patient enough with him as he recovered for him to show them exactly where they needed to go. So verse 16 when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. So the Amalekites don't expect anybody to be covering, coming after them because they know that all the Philistines are where? they're in Israel find the battle. So there's nobody to come after them. They think they've got it made. They're not worried at all but it says david struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men random detail don't know why it's there cuz 400 young men seems like a lot to me but you know none of them escaped except for 400, except for 400. no big deal i have no insights for you there i don't know except for these 400 who mounted camels and fled they made it out but nobody else David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. So David goes, and he recovers everything from the Amalekites. All the wives, all the children, all the livestock, everything else that could be counted as spoil. I'm not sure what all that is, but he gets it all back just as God had promised. God had told him, you will surely overtake him and you will surely rescue. So you see a fulfillment of God's word to David, that God keeps his word. He keeps his word when it's good and he keeps his word when it's bad. The Lord is one who is faithful to keep his promises. He does what he says he will do. So not only does the Lord lead David to the enemy, but he saves every single one of the people who have been taken captive. And David has victory over the Amalekites that day. And it is ironic because these are the people that Saul was supposed to take down. And David's not even technically king yet, but this is part of his kingmaking is that he is given victory over these people. David completed the job. He rescued his people and did the work that Saul refused to do, except for those 400 guys who managed to get away. (laughs) Don't know about that. Verse 21. Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Basor, and they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So does that strike you as strange, the wicked and worthless men with David? Verse 23. David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. David points to God as the one who protected and preserved them. So God gets all the glory for the raid. David doesn't take any of that for himself. And he shares the spoils with all of his people, even the ones who were too tired to go on. And there's this beautiful picture of the gospel here. Because Christ goes to battle for us. He defeats our enemies for us. He fights on our behalf and he shares the spoils of that victory with us. He gives us his righteousness to wear. He slays sin and death so that they cannot touch us. It has no hold on us because he has conquered it. And we get to enjoy the fruits of his labor, so to speak, without having lifted a finger in battle ourselves. That is what God does for us. Jesus gives us both rescue and victory without payment and without cost. He gives it freely We couldn't earn it if we tried. We certainly don't deserve it. We are just like those guys who got left with the luggage, but who are given all the treasures of the victory, even though they weren't there. That's what Christ does for us. So then David goes back to Ziklag. And we get this long list of people in verse 26 through 31 that he shares the spoil with. And you can see that he is um, giving it out to all the people of Judah. He's kind of laying the groundwork for his kingdom. He's building relationships and he's preparing for the time when he's going to be on the throne. And I wish that we could stop here because this is one of those high points in First Samuel. Like, let's just be done. Yay! God is raising up a faithful king who's going to give him glory. And let's just stop. But that is not where the story ends, because we've got to see the resolution of the other word that God has given in this story. So when we flash back over to Saul in chapter 31, the picture is grim because all of his worst fears, which also happens to be the word of the Lord, are being realized. So this is a super short chapter. It's 13 verses to describe this tragedy this terrible loss, and you get the sense that whoever it was who wrote First Samuel just wants to get it over with. There's no um, embellishment of the story. You just get the bare facts, bare bones of the story. This is what happened. It was terrible. The end. There's no pleasure in the telling of it. It is completely tragic and awful and heavy with loss. So, chapter 31, verses 1 through 2. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And this is the worst part of Saul's rebellion, because it is not just his downfall. His sin affects everyone who is close to him. And not just the people who are close to him, but the people he was meant to lead. It's not just his undoing, but it's the nation's. Jonathan, who was faithful and hopeful and loyal and brave, Jonathan knew the Lord and trusted in him. And hoped, y'all. The last time that we saw him, when he met with David, David was on the run. It was in chapter 23. And he goes to David to strengthen him in the Lord. But what he said to David then was, My my father Saul shall not overtake you. You will be on the throne and I will be at your side. He held out hope for a resolution that didn't come to all of this. And... Yet, none of that could stop it from happening. He thought that there would be a day when all would be well. When Saul would give up his pursuit of David and let it go. But all of that is wiped out and gone in an instant. And he falls slain like so many others, on Mount Gilboa. Verse 3, The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So the armor bearer has the same hesitancy to lay his hand on Saul and take his life that David did. Because despite everything, all of Saul's mistakes, all of his callous decisions and hardness of heart and rebellion and bad leadership, all of that, despite all of that, he was still the Lord's anointed. And the armor bearer won't do it. He will not touch him. But why do you think that Saul wants the armor bearer to kill him? I think a lot of times it is presented that way, that he was was kind of cowardly in a way, that he wants to, you know, he wants to be spared this terrible death. So he's still trying to take things in his own hands. But um, in studying for this, what... I heard and read is that um, it wasn't necessarily cowardly, but it was Saul had to have known that if they got a hold of him while he was still alive, what that would have done to the morale of the people of Israel to see their king that they had chosen treated in that way. Stripped of his dignity, tortured, beaten. Who knows what they would have done to him if they got their hands on him? And so the commentaries say, lean toward this as Saul trying to find the best ending possible, not just for himself. Like he knows, he knows that he's going to die. There's no question here about what's going to happen to him. Not only has Samuel spoken it, but it is apparent from the way that the battle is going that there is no hope. There's no making it out alive. And so the question is, how are you going to die? And he's trying to make it more of an honorable death than what would have happened to him if they got their hands on him. At least if he kills himself, then they won't be able to use his torture and his death as a weapon against the people of Israel. They won't be able to hold him captive or do any of those things if he's already dead. So verses 6 through 7. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. Another fulfillment of the word, right? And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, And that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The devastation and hopelessness is total. Because the people of Israel flee. Like they're too scared to stay in their homes. So it's not just that they lost the battle. But that they are losing the land. Giving up the land as a result. The Philistines claim their towns and cities and move into them as their own. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. So why would they do that? Because putting his body on display... Desecrating it, cutting off his head is proof not just that he's dead, but that they have they are superior that um, the king of Israel can't stand against Philistine the Philistines. so they turn his body into a trophy of victory. But what happens? But when the inhabitants of Jabesh- Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, and all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshar. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So why did they do this thing for Saul? These are the same people that Saul rescued at his high point in chapter 11. They were desperate and alone. When Nahash the Ammonite came against them, they sent for help, and Saul answered their cries for help, and he came, and he rescued them, and he delivered them, and they had not forgotten it. Despite everything else, they remembered this one shining moment that Saul had, so they gave him this one final mercy. And that is how we finish 1 Samuel. Everyone feels great about that ending, right? You can't read 1 Samuel without seeing God's sovereign hand at work. And it's not just in these last three chapters, which we see plenty of it here. You see God protecting David from himself. That's a prayer that I pray almost every day, by the way. Lord, save me from myself. Because sometimes I can be my own worst enemy. So you see the Lord stepping in and intervening. To protect David. But why does he do that? David is in the land of his enemies. He's in the territory of the Philistines. And the Lord is with him, even though he's there, doing things he ought not to be doing. And it reminds me of that other passage in 1 Samuel way earlier. We talked about it in the fall. When the Ark of the Covenant was in exile in the land of the Philistines. What happened when the ark went there? The Lord preserved his own glory and he went to battle, causing devastation all up in their land. And the lords of the Philistines got together and they said, Get this thing out of here. And they sent it back home. But it was the Lord still fighting for his glory. That prevailed. And in the same way, David's with the Philistines, wreaking havoc. When the lords of the Philistines get together and they're like, What is this guy doing here? Get him out of here. And the Lord brings David out in a way that only he gets the glory for, and he rescues and redeems. He protects his own glory. In his own presence, and he does that for David. But he also rescues and redeems his people from their enemies. At the same time that Saul and the men of Israel who are fighting with him are dying on the battlefield, he is rescuing David and David's people from the hand of their other enemies. So when you read all of this, I think we have to go back to Hannah's prayer way back at the beginning of the book and remember the theme that has carried us through all of this, that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. It says, "Verses. this is 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. We certainly have seen that in these chapters. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on him he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. So how does a man prevail? Not by strength, but by what? By the hand of God, the mighty have fallen. So we get that first half of Hannah's prayer. He has brought low the proud and the weak are in the process of being lifted up, but we're not all the way there yet because even though David is on the scene and things in Israel, are really, really bad. We're stuck here in the middle of the story and still waiting to see what happens, longing for that happy ending. There is no resolution here, not tonight anyway. But we all long for the happy ending where God's king is on the throne in Israel and God's people are safe alongside him. And if we keep reading, which maybe you should... You'll see David rise to be the best king that Israel ever has, which is pretty sad, because he also falls pretty hard, and his family and his kingdom never fully recover. Even though he repents, even though he, um, you know, his relationship with the Lord is restored, the kingdom, you know, there are consequences for his action. But here's the thing. David points the way to that future king who will be better than any other. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, and he goes on to say that there is going to be a king who comes from the line of David. Verse 15, My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David points us to that king. And that is the hope that first Samuel gives us. That even though things are bad in Israel... Even though Saul's not perfect, even though David's not perfect, there is going to be a king someday who will save us from everything. And unlike Saul and David, this king doesn't fail and he sits on that throne even now. And we are safe with him. Even though this world sometimes seems so dark and so hopeless, even though we're still stuck in the in-between, that Already the king has come, but not yet is his kingdom fully realized that they were. We're in that tension, but we can trust the Lord, that God's word can be trusted. And his word tells us that Christ has come, Christ has risen, but Christ will come again. And then, and only then, only when he comes back, will we fully and finally realize Be partakers, citizens of this kingdom that never ends. We are already citizens of heaven, but we are not yet there. So then the question is for us in the meantime is how we're going to respond to God's reign and rule in our lives. Because he is Lord, he is king, always. Me admitting and confessing that he is Lord and king doesn't change the fact that he is. Like, he's king whether I admit it or not. He is king, He's not king because we say so. He is the king. He is sovereign. Even over the smallest details, he works in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And you can see that in this story. But if we learn anything from Saul, let it be this, that we cannot prevail against his will. You cannot go head to head with the Lord and come out on top. That's not how it works. God wins every single time. Even kings and kingdoms are subject to his rule. No one, not Saul, not David, not me, not you, none of us are above his rule. So it's better for us to bow down, to submit, to pledge our allegiance to him, to follow his ways, to live our lives according to his word. Whether we like that word or not, sometimes it's hard It's hard to live according to the word of the Lord. And I'm not fighting the same kind of battles as David and Saul, but just everyday life is hard. But it's worth it to order my life according to his will instead of according to my own because his ways are better. And though God is sovereign and though he is gracious, we see so much of that here. His grace, even in the midst of such terrible tragedy. We see the hope that he gives, and that's grace. But we will be held accountable for our actions. So, let's live our lives in ways that honor and please him and point to him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's give him glory and all our successes and all of our victories. And when we are defeated in our lowest of lows and our desperate moments, Let's be the people who turn to him and rely on him for strength. Trust him to show us the way even when we can't see it. Let's submit to him even then and trust him even then because he is king and he is good and he does all things for our good and for his glory forever and ever. The end. Let's pray. We can be done. Father, thank you so much for your word. Even your word that's hard lord god i pray that you would help us to be people who submit to you who bow down before you who humble ourselves before you god i pray that you would create in us hearts that are loyal to you god thank you so much for the grace and the mercy you have given us for fighting our battles for being the kind of king who protects us and (laughs) defeats our biggest enemies Lord, you have fought the battle against sin and death, Father, and you have prevailed. And we are trusting in you and waiting, waiting for your kingdom to come once and for all, God. I pray that you would find us faithful in the waiting, that our lives would give glory to you, would point others to you, and would display your majesty for all the world to see. Father, may you be Lord and Master of our lives today, tomorrow, and forever. And that we pray these things. Amen.